Today's reading is from 2 Samuel 1 to 2 7. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Zekalag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked, tell me. The men fled from the battle. He replied, many of them fell and died and Saul and his son Jonathan were dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned round and saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? And Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I am still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Devi said to the young man who brought him the report, where are you from? I am the son of foreigner, the Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. But David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David took up his lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught that lament of the bow, it is written in the book of Jesha. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistine be glad lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Giboya 
May you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You are very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. David said, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Anionom of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of the Nebel of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and they were anointed, David king over the tribe of Judah. When David was told that it was the men from Jabez Gilad who had buried Saul, he sent messages, messengers to them to say to them, The Lord blessed you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying them. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. This is God's word. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name's Phil. I'm the associate minister here. It's lovely to have you with us. Uh, it's... Um, it is a warm evening. It's a warm evening. If you give me your attention, I'll be a little bit briefer than usual. Uh, not a lot, but a little. Um, let's pray. Father God, um, we need your word. Father, it is life and it is truth. We pray, Father, that tonight it would be those things as we see the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, the greatest need of our lives is that we would trust him more deeply. So help us to understand him more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're turning from a, a very, very intensely practical four-week series where we were looking at the topic of friendship, and we're moving to an obscure history book about the battle for the throne of an ancient kingdom in a faraway land, which doesn't sound particularly... Uh, well, oh, we're, why are we doing that? And on a hot evening, you think, really, I've come out for that? 
Now, we're returning to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We worked through 1 Samuel last year. We'll see roughly where it is in the Bible timeline, if you can read that. So we're after the time of the judges, after the lovely little book of Ruth, and we went into 1 and 2 Samuel. So um, we started with King Saul, and we're just moving into the time now of King David. So the Exodus was a long time ago. Jesus is going to appear in a thousand years. That's where we are in the Bible. Now, as we started to see, 1 and 2 Samuel are... They are some of the most thrilling box sets that the Bible has to offer. You've got this uh, titanic power struggle for the throne. You've got brave warriors. You've got flawed heroes, terrible betrayals. You've got uh, fugitives on the run, massive battles, tragic deaths, sex scandals, everything. It is basically like a cross between Succession and Game of Thrones, neither of which I've watched, but <laughs> everybody knows what the, what's in them because everybody talks about them. And it basically, this is what's... This is what we're going through. And it is very interesting, uh, entertaining even, but it may not seem very practical, not very useful to us in our daily lives. I guess most of us here, we're, we're trying to work out, how do I serve Jesus in the realities of 21st century London? And we wonder, what on earth has the book of 2 Samuel got to teach me? Or others of us come to church and we're wrestling with the big question, am I going to put my trust in Jesus? Am I actually going to decide I'm going to follow Jesus for my life? Well, I think we're going to find this is an intensely relevant and practical series because at its heart, it is all about the leadership that Jesus Christ offers. And leadership matters. You know, why are we so concerned about what's happening in Russia at the moment? Well, because we know that As the leader leads, the country follows. Whether there is war or peace, well, that is largely down to the leadership. Whether there is poverty or prosperity, the leadership. Whether truth and justice are valued in society or selfishness and deceit are awarded, it's down to the leadership. And too often... We're aware that yeah, you kind of suffer from this catch-22 situation where uh, the very sort of ambitious kind of people who get into positions of leadership, the very qualities that get them there make them terrible leaders when they're there. Because they, well, actually, I mean, basically they wear the wrong glasses. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, that it's not that you have to have perfect eyesight to be a leader, but I mean the lens through which too many leaders view everything is how does this advance me? How does this make me look? How does this get me further ahead? How does this bolster my position? How does this help me achieve what I want? Rather than, how does this serve the people? And in 2 Samuel 1, we'll see a vision of something much better. We'll see a leader who honors God and serves others, whether it helps him or not. And the biggest decision, basically, you and I will make in life is who's going to lead my life? Will it be King me or King Jesus or somebody else? And tonight we'll see why the best decision you could ever make is to give the crown to the one who deserves it, King Jesus. Now, in these early chapters of 2 Samuel, in particular, 
David is a pattern or a shadow, or the technical term is a type, in that he kind of points us towards Jesus. He does things which, which are very Jesus-like things. And so as we look at David, we're going to learn about Jesus. Now, that shouldn't surprise us, because when Jesus was talking to the religious teachers in John 5.39, he said, look, hey, the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament, it's about me. You don't understand the Bible unless you see it all points to me, Jesus says. And of all the shadows of Jesus throughout the Old Testament, perhaps the most important is David, because Jesus, his main title, it's not his surname, you know his main title, he's Jesus Christ, exactly, Christ, Messiah, the anointed king who saves his people, which is basically David, Mark 2, or David, the better. And so we're going to see an awful lot of Jesus in these chapters. Right, enough faffing around, let's get into it. So, three things to see. Firstly, David judges the killer of his enemy, then David laments the death that makes him king, and then David honors those who honored his enemy. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. Pause. The second half of 1 Samuel was a power struggle. Saul had been the first king of Israel, but he had disobeyed God and been rejected by God. And instead, God had had Samuel the prophet anoint this young shepherd boy, David, and say, he is the king who is going to be the true king of my people. And Saul's response had been murderous rage. He'd betrayed David, had him declared a fugitive, and hunted him through the wilderness. And eventually, David had to take refuge with the enemies of God's people, the Philistines. And so the tragic climax, if you missed it, of 1 Samuel had the Philistine army marching out to battle with Saul and the Israelites, and David and his men marching with the Philistines. Until some of the Philistine generals said, hang on a second, Um, what on earth is he doing in our army? You know, he kind of killed Goliath, our best warrior, a few years ago. Who's to say he's not going to switch sides as soon as the battle starts? And so the king reluctantly tells David and his men, you can't join us. I mean, it's probably fair enough because it's probably what David was planning. But anyway, it means David and his men are not at Mount Gilboa when the Israelite army is trounced by the Philistines and they're back and they're desperate for news. And on the third day, a disheveled young man comes into the camp. Verse 2, on the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? Tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. There it is. Ever since the day God had said, I'm rejecting Saul and I'm appointing you, David, as king, he's known this day will come. And now it is here. But David wants to know more. David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. Now, if you were here for 1 Samuel, that is so very Saul, leaning on his spear. The spear became the emblem of Saul's rule. He turned away from relying on God to establish his rule. And instead, he relied on violence. 
and in particular this spear. The spear that he flung at David to kill him. The spear that he carried with him through the wilderness as he hunted David down. The spear that David stole from the camp when he snuck in at night to convince Saul, hey, look, you've got nothing to fear from me. I don't want to kill you. And now at the end of his life, still this tragic figure is leaning on his spear. It is such a true-to-Saul detail that I think we are meant to read this and think, yeah, this guy really was there. He, he really did see the, the death of Saul. But we know from the end of 1 Samuel that what he tells us next is a flat-out lie. Let's dive back in at verse 7. When he turned round, when Saul turned round and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said, Stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and I killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. <laughs> the irony is enormous. An Amalekite. Saul's rule effectively ended when he refused to carry out God's command and execute God's judgment on the Amalekites because he wanted to get rich instead. And now here is an Amalekite claiming that he has carried out God's command and executed Saul. Verse 11. Then David and all the men who were with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they'd fallen by the sword. Oops. Now, I don't know, but I'm guessing that is not the response he was looking for when he presented the crown to David. I mean, pause. What really happened and what is he expecting? Well, we know that Saul took his own life at the end of the battle as he was about to be overtaken by the Philistines and he was already wounded. And it seems so this guy was involved in the battle and he saw Saul kill himself. And before the Philistines had caught up, he took the crown and the armband off Saul and escaped the battlefield. And he knows enough to know who to take them to and he knows enough to know where David is. And he takes them there and I think he's calculating I bring the crown to David. I tell David, I have killed your rival. And I'm going to see myself showered in gold. I will be rewarded. I wonder if his blood didn't run a little bit cold. When instead of a gleeful cry of victory, there is a wail of mourning when David hears what has happened. But why on earth would David cry over the death of the man who is keeping him from the throne that God has said is his and the man who's been trying to kill him for years and years and years? Why on earth is David crying over that rather than rejoicing? See if you can spot it. The answer comes in verses 13 to 16. David said to the young man who brought in the report, where are you from? I'm the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. This is why David cries at the death of Saul because David doesn't view Saul through the glasses the lens of 
How did Saul treat me? That's not the way David views reality. David views Saul through God's lens. God anointed him. The Lord's anointed has been killed. Who cares how Saul treated me? He was the Lord's anointed. And therefore I will mourn his death. God has placed Saul on the throne. Only God can take him down. You see, David's great concern is not David, my comfort, my crown, my security, my kingdom. David's great concern is God's. And God is not a means to an end for David. It's not, God, you're very useful because you're very powerful. And I like power. And if you're on my side, I'm invincible. No, no, no. For David, God is the ends in himself. To be served, whether it helps David's life or whether it makes David's life hard. He serves God. David judges the killer of his enemy because David honors the Lord. Secondly, David laments the death which makes him king. Now, as well as a, a great warrior, David is a very gifted poet. The, the largest proportion of the Psalms in the Bible are written by David, a phenomenal, beautiful, gifted poet. And so he responds to the death of Saul and Jonathan with a song. We won't go through it in detail, but let's see a few things. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered the people of Judah be taught the lament of the bow. Now, that's the key thing to, th to notice. This isn't just a personal expression of grief. David is gutted, and so he, being a poet, expresses himself in song. Now, David takes time to write down and compose a song that will be taught to all the people of Judah. Now, that is odd, because Judah's David's tribe. Saul is not from Judah. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. And yet he wants his tribe to mourn their king. And why do you teach a song? <coughs> ben will give us the answer. And in part, songs are emotive. They help you to express emotions. And so by writing a song, David is saying, let me help you understand what kind of an event this is. What a right response to this looks like. This is a sad event. You should lament. You should be brokenhearted. But there's another reason you write a song in this time. This is an oral culture. Nobody owns books. They haven't been invented technologically. But nobody owns scrolls in their own home. They're far too expensive to have parchment and scrolls. Almost nobody can read and write. So in this culture, you compose a song so that something is repeated and remembered. Now, again, that is stunning. David wants the former king who declared him an outlaw, remembered and remembered and celebrated. That is not normal behavior. Uh, now, those of you who had the benefit of a classical education will, I'm sure, know all about the Roman practice of damnatio memoriae, which actually, to this generation, that just sounds like a spell from Harry Potter, doesn't it? Damnatio memoriae. But um, actually, it's the, it's the practice, the common practice, which ran through, uh, actually Stalin's Russia, they did it as well. When your rival is destroyed, when you take over, you expunge all possible memory of them. You write them out the history books. You destroy the statues. You make sure no one remembers them. So guys, Caligula. Um, now Caligula, if we've got a picture of um, him there, there we go, uh, looks uh, quite noble in the picture. He was mad even by Roman emperor standards. Um, most of it's not family-friendly madness, but um, one thing that he was famous for was he appointed a horse a member of the Senate. 
Um, now, I don't know what you think of our elected officials these days, but let me tell you, horses uh, are well below the threshold of even our worst MPs. Um, and uh, eventually, he was so absolutely appalling that he was assassinated by his own guards, and his uncle, Claudius, took over in AD 41. And when he took over, he had every mention of Caligula scraped out of the records. Every inscription scratched off the walls. Every statue was rechiseled to look like Augustus, his great-grandfather, who looked a bit like him. The only reason we've got any of these statues is because people were so quick to get rid of the statues that some were just sort of tossed in cellars and forgotten about. But with David, he honors and he, he takes great pains. No, 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 we mustn't forget this man. We mustn't forget him because he was the Lord's anointed and he led the people in battle. He fought to protect God's people. So who cares that he hated me and kept me from the throne? God's people should remember him. This is more than shrewd politics. Oh, you know, this will play well with the people looking magnanimous. No, this is too visceral and emotive for that. This comes from a noble heart, not a scheming mind. Now, the, 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 the song itself, if you want to look at it later, is, there's a pattern to it. You get these bracketing statements about the mighty in verses 19 and 26, and then daughters in verses 20 and 24, and then in the heart, verses about Saul's shield and Jonathan's bow, these warriors in 21 to 23. And structurally, it should end at verse 25, but it doesn't. The personal really breaks in in verse 26. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. Now, sex-obsessed modern writers uh, cite this as evidence of a homosexual relationship between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. But there is precisely zero evidence for that. Actually, I hope that after the last four weeks and the series that we've just had, you guys can see it for what it is, which is a deeply moving celebration of the beauty and depth that friendship can achieve. And perhaps it is no surprise that a man who made as big a mess of marriage as David, marrying multiple people, having at least one affair, someone who has failed in marriage as badly as him should treasure a rich, loyal friendship the way that he does. You see, David and Jonathan weren't lovers. They were brothers in arms, a friendship forged serving God on the battlefield together, sacrificing personal ambition for the sake of each other. Jonathan even renounced his claim to the, the crown that was his. Say, I recognize God has anointed you. I'll serve you, David. That's true loyalty and real friendship. And so the bitter grief is no surprise. Now, the people, have, the people have suffered a traumatic loss of their king in the battle. And David's concern is, well, not well, right, <laughs> I've really got to, I've got to worry about establishing my throne at this point. You, you, we can worry about Saul another time, but I need to establish my throne. No, 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 David's, David's concern is the people have suffered a great loss. The people are bewildered. The people are brokenhearted. They need help to express that. I'll teach them how to lament. I'll honor Saul. 
How do I honor God and help his people? That's the question David asks. And then thirdly and finally, David honors those who honored his enemy. Now, we speak about ascending to the throne, literally going up. And look at how often that phrase is used, or that word is used at the beginning of chapter 2. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up with his two wives, Ahanam, Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron. And they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. Now, David was anointed by God king many years before, but now at last he's crowned. But the stress, do you notice, is he won't take matters into his own hands. Look, I will ascend the throne at God's time and in God's way. And again, what is the first thing that he then does as king? He honors the memory of Saul and those who've honored Saul. So uh, the final bit, uh, Saul's body was nailed to the walls of one of the Philistine cities. And the, the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, who were the first city that Saul as king had rescued when they were going to be slaughtered, they have gone at great personal risk and rescued the body of Saul and given it a proper burial. And David's first act as king is to honor those who honored Saul is a very risky action they've undertaken. You know, when a new king is crowned, the thing to do is to send a delegation to the new king, not a delegation to one of the old dead king. Uh, when King Charles II took the throne in 1660, we'll see him in his magnificent hair, I think possibly by the magic of technology. There we go. Look at that. Um, quite magnificent. He immediately went back on all the promises he'd given and launched a vicious vendetta against those involved with the, the previous regime. Anyone involved in his father's trial was hunted down, tortured to death, their property confiscated, and their families left destitute. Oliver Cromwell, who'd overseen his father's defeat and led the country, had died before in 1658, so Charles had his corpse dug up so it could be executed again by hanging and beheading. And then the head was stuck into a spike and left outside the Palace of Westminster, the Houses of Parliament, for, for the best part of 20 years. I've been, I was told that the picture was too gruesome of the, the head on the spike, um, so instead we have a picture of Cromwell with his head very much on his shoulders. Um, but if you're not too gruesome, doubt, and you're intrigued by such things, I can show you on my phone afterwards. But, um, but no one in those 20 years risked taking down Cromwell's head and giving it a proper burial. You didn't do that because you know what will happen if you're involved with the previous regime and you honor the previous regime when the new king comes. But David blesses those who did it. The Lord bless you, verse 3, for showing this kindness to Saul, your master. Now I will show you favor, David says. What matters to David is not, do I get personal advantage from what you've just done? No, it's, you've honored the Lord's anointed. Who cares whether that serves me? You honor God. That's enough for me. Now, David, it seems to me, gets an awful lot right in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, we'll see soon enough in the coming chapters he has feet of clay. And the Bible warns us repeatedly, don't put your trust in human leaders. But the wonderful thing about this chapter is it points beyond David to great David's greater son, King Jesus. David is, is a pale shadow 
through which the light of the gospel shines in this chapter as he shows us an anointed king who seeks the kingdom and glory of God and the good of God's people. A king who doesn't seem concerned with personal advantage and popularity and comfort, who doesn't show favoritism to his own people and prejudice against those from the wrong tribe, but he receives all who love and honor God. When Jesus came, he was offered the crown first without dying. It's your throne. Take it, Jesus. The devil tempts him with that. His own disciples offer it to him. The crowds call him to take it, but he refused. His father's plan was he would not take the crown until he had descended into agony, shame, and humiliation by dying on the cross. And Jesus knew that it was only if he suffered that shame and that agony and that humiliation that you and I could be saved from our sin. And so although he could have just taken the crown, just as David could have done any of these actions to, well, fine, I will take, I will serve me. Jesus refused the easy way. He refused to grab what was his by his rights anyway, and instead obeyed God and died on the cross. He is the king who puts serving God and his people ahead of his own comfort. And in the mess of confusion of life today, as you and I cry out for leaders we can trust in a world of overwhelming challenges, the Bible reveals to us Jesus, a leader we can trust, who will never fail, who would rather die than dishonor God or fail to serve you. The passage calls us to trust in Jesus and shows us what a privilege that is. It also asks us a question for those of us who do trust in Jesus. Which lens do you look at life through? Too often it's the me lens. How does this serve me? Will this enable me to get what I want, to achieve my goals, my purpose, my comfort? Jesus says, look at life through the lens of, does this obey and honor God? He calls us to follow his example, the example set out by David, whether it's handling difficult decisions at work or deciding whether to honor God in a relationship or struggling to put into practice what we heard last week about forgiving in friendships. We feel the temptation to take the easy road, to look at things through, how's this going to make my life go? Jesus shows us a better path. Honor God. Jesus himself commands us, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all this other stuff will be given to you as well. David shows in glorious technicolor what that looks like, and I hope it helps us trust and follow Jesus. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for David. We thank you most of all that through David we see a hint of the Lord Jesus, one who put his needs second, his comfort last, his father first, and who would, not, who would not stop at anything to serve and save his people. Help us to trust him, to love him, and help us to follow him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.